If you were able to join us last week, you heard a little bit about just some of the uniqueness of this gospel and some of the major themes that we will be discussing in the weeks and months and maybe even years to come. Uh, But this morning, I want to begin by considering John's purpose statement, and that's found in chapter 20, um, verses 30 and 31. So maybe turn there in your Bible and you can kind of highlight this. So John does an interesting thing. He puts his purpose statement near the end of his story about Jesus. And I think reading this purpose statement brings a lot of clarity about what John isn't doing and what he is doing. And I personally like to use this statement as I study, as I read the Gospel of John, as a kind of lens through which I read each story and section of this Gospel. So John writes... In chapter 20, verses 30 through 31, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples. These are not recorded in this book. But these things that are recorded are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, And that by believing, you may have life in his name. So what is John saying? Well, he makes it clear this is not a biography or an exhaustive account of the life and works of Jesus. Really, as if any such thing could exist. But what is recorded is hand-picked, curated, in order that we, the reader, might believe, might trust and center our whole person upon the anointed, promised king of Israel, the true king of the world, Jesus Christ. And that by believing, by centering our lives, by trusting in his name, we would have life ongoing life, a a quality of life like the world has never seen, that we would have that, that we would find that in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, that's an interesting statement that John makes here in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. John connects what we believe, what we trust in, what we center our lives around to the quality of life that we will experience. You see, each of us is believing in something. We're trusting in something or someone, and that belief, that trust, that centering our life on that thing or person, that's actually taking us somewhere. It's leading us either further into life or further into death, both now and forever. I think many of us, we have plans for our lives. We have maybe a great education under our belt. We have a career, marriage, family. Some of us have dreams of those things. And if those things don't happen, or maybe we have experienced those things and they haven't gone the way that we planned or thought that they would, they haven't done for us what we believed they would, something inside of us dies It's disappointed, it's let down. And that many experience of death is a warning sign 
I heard Ray Ortland once say, beliefs that let us down are prophetic whispers saying, don't you see where this is going? This is actually the grace of God in our lives to allow us to trust in something and allow it to fail us in order that we might hunger and thirst for that which is truly life, that which can only be found in and through Jesus. So this morning, I would like each of us, and I would like to kind of set the stage as we go on through the Gospel of John, I would like each of us to consider afresh that question, what are you believing in? What are you trusting in and centering your life around, and do you realize that how you answer that question is a matter of life and death? Now, that sounds dramatic, doesn't it? Oh, a matter of life and death. But I'm not talking about the end of your life. I'm talking about now. I'm talking about what is life giving to you now. What fills your soul with joy, with peace, with power. What you believe, whatever it is, is either killing you or enlivening you, filling you up or draining you of all life. What are you believing in and do you have life in its name? Now, John's purpose statement and his gospel, it gives us this opportunity to reconsider our lives at a deep level and to ask ourselves, am I really living Am I experiencing a kind of love, a kind of hope, a peace that I can commend to others? And I pray that as we ask ourselves this question, that we weekly, daily would take up John's offer to believe, to center and recenter our lives around Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, we would have life in his name, true life. So how is John's purpose statement connected to these first 18 verses? Well, let's talk about that. But I want to begin first by talking about the identity of the word. So John begins, verse 1, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made and without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life and that life was the light of all mankind. And that light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, the first words of John's gospel are undoubtedly an echo of the first words of the Bible, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, as John begins his account of the life, words, and works of Jesus, he's going to take us back further than any of the other gospel writers take us. He takes us back before the beginning, when there was only God existing in deep, intimate fellowship with the Word. Now, by playing off Genesis 1-1, John is evoking thoughts about creation and maybe even hinting at a new kind of creation is happening or at work. And he's highlighting specifically the powerful Word of God to speak all life into being. 
John introduces us to the Word, and he says the Word was in the beginning, was with God, and the Word was God, and all things were made through him, and the Word was life, and that life is the light of men. What is John talking about? It almost, you know, maybe if you're like new to reading the Bible, these verses almost feel like a riddle or a poem, and you're like, what is going on here? Well, let me just try to highlight a few things that I think John is wanting to draw our attention to. In the Old Testament, God regularly acted by means of his word. God speaks and it comes to pass. God breathes or speaks and life springs into being. And we clearly see this in the creation of the world. God's very word is his dynamic creative power that commands all life into being. Listen to Psalm 33, verse 6. By the word of Yahweh, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all of their host. Or in Isaiah 40, verse 8, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Or one more, Isaiah 55, God's word will go out of his mouth and bring life, healing and hope to Israel and the whole creation. This is part of what lies behind John describing Jesus as the word of God. It's God's dynamic, creative power that speaks all life into being. He is the source of life. But John also says the word, he, he speaks about the word, and I believe that John is saying about the word what many had already said about wisdom. See, many Jewish teachers had grappled with the age-old questions, how can the one true God be both different from the world and active within the world? How can God be holy and separate but also with us, with his people? N.T. Wright in his commentary on John's Gospel says, some had already spoken of the word and wisdom as ways of answering that question. Some had combined them within the belief that the one true God had promised to put his own presence within the temple at Jerusalem. Others saw them enshrined in the Jewish law, the Torah. All of this, he says, is present in John's mind when he writes about the word. So it's the creative, dynamic power of God. It's also the wisdom of God that was there, as the Proverbs describe, at the creation of the world. Wisdom was God's right, at God's right hand and instructing and, and working with God in the creation of all things. But one more, speaking of the word would also make some of John's readers think of the ideas that pagan philosophers had discussed because they spoke of the word as a kind of principle of rationality lying deep within the whole cosmos and within all human beings. If you could get in touch with that principle, the word, they said your life will find its true meaning purpose, and fulfillment. If that's the case, then John is saying to us, yes, 
Yes, the word, but it isn't an abstract principle. It is a person, and I am here to introduce you to him. Because the word became human and dwelt among us and showed us the glory of the Father like only a son can do. And now John transitions from talking about the word to telling us about the son. But... One more thing, there is something else that John wants to draw our attention to, and that's not just that the Word is God and the Word was God or was with God, but that the Word was in deep fellowship with God. John uses this word, was with God, but the idea there is that of being face-to-face interactive exchange between the Word and God. See, John wants us to know about the deep relationship that exists between the Word and God. John, at the end of this prologue, verse 18, describes the Word now as the Son who is in the bosom or at the side of or leaning on the chest of the Father. That's what he's describing for us. So what does that mean? Well, being in the bosom of or leaning on the chest, this is not a term we really use, right? It was an ancient metaphor or picture for deep love and intimacy between two people. See, John is telling us something about the deep love that exists between God and his son, the Word. And as we get further into John's gospel, Jesus will speak of himself as the one who glorifies and honors the Father. He'll speak of the Father as the one who glorifies and honors him. And then even later, he'll talk about how the Spirit also glorifies and honors him. I say all this to make this connection that the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit live in this kind of eternal dynamic of honor, glory, and love with one another. John, the author of this gospel, you know, he also wrote letters to the churches to encourage them. And in his first letter that we have, he makes this incredible statement. He says to the church, God is love. And John isn't just telling us something about what God does or letting us know that God is benevolent or kind um, as a characteristic or feature, but that God in his very essence and being is love. He is the author or source of all love. It derives from and has its basis in him. I love what C.S. Lewis says about this in his book, Mere Christianity. He says, the words, God is love, have no real meaning unless God contains at least two persons. Love is something that one person has for another person. And if God was a single person, then before the world was made, he was not love. What Christians mean by the statement, God is love, is that the living dynamic activity of love has been going on in God forever and has created everything else. All creation, all life, all goodness springs out of these dynamics of God. 
Lewis goes on, and that, by the way, is perhaps the most important difference between Christianity and all other religions, that in Christianity, God is not a static thing, not even a person, but a dynamic, pulsating activity, a life, almost a kind of drama, almost, if you will not think me irreverent, a kind of dance. One more quote, sorry. I love the way that Tim Keller lays this out in his book, A Reason for God. He's connecting all of this, the the glorifying, the praising and honoring, the loving. He says, to glorify someone means to praise, to enjoy, to delight in them. What this means then is that the inner life of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, is characterized by mutual self-giving love. This is the principle of the universe. Each of the divine persons centers upon the other. None demands that the other revolve around him. Each voluntarily cycles the other two, pouring love, delight, and adoration into them. Each person of the Trinity loves, adores, defers to, and rejoices in the others. That creates a dynamic dance of joy and love. The early leaders of the Greek church had a word for this. It's perichoresis. It is where we get our word choreography. It means literally to dance or flow around. Now, I wonder if it seems strange to you to think or even speak of God in this way. There are all sorts of ideas we have about God, what we think he's like, what we think he's after. And I believe our mistake often is that we bring these preconceived ideas about God, whether it's from Christian culture, it's from our upbringing, or even the surrounding culture. We bring them. They're this they're like these, this baggage that we have. And we try to fit the biblical God into that idea. But the God that Scripture reveals is one who is love, who creates, who gives life freely, who delights in all that he has made. It's a God from whom all blessings, life, and goodness flow. The God that scripture reveals is a God who loves to bless, who loves to keep, who causes his face to shine upon his people, who smiles upon them. Now, maybe you're wondering at this point, okay, great, what does all of this have to do with what we've been saying about the word as wisdom, as life source, as dynamic creative power, and now in terms of deep, intimate fellowship with God? Well, I think if we take all that John has described here in the first 18 verses along with this statement that God is love, the picture we get is of God the Father as these kind of headwaters of life, like the headwaters of a stream or a flowing, beautiful, deep river. God is the headwaters of all life, goodness, and love, and he pours that into the sun. I mean, just think about, if you've ever read the Gospel of John before, the way that Jesus speaks about the love that the Father has for him. 
I mean, undoubtedly, the father adores the son. He is a doting father. And Jesus has no doubt about God's love and his intent, excuse me, the father's love and intentions for him. He is very, very clear on that. The father is the headwaters of all life, love, and goodness, and he pours, he dotes over the son. And in turn, the son loves the father, and he dotes over the father, and he pours back life and love and goodness into the father. And the Father and the Son and the Spirit have poured their life, love, and goodness into the creation of the world. That's why in the creation we see God, he's like a new father. Oh, you're good, you're good, you're good, good. All of this love and life is flowing out of the Godhead into the creation of the world, it's like these cascading waterfalls of life pouring forth from the life that is in God. And I believe that what John is trying to tell us and show us is that the incarnation, the word becoming flesh, the Son of God dwelling among us, showing us the glory of the Father, is God pouring out this very life, love, and goodness out in the world in order to rescue humans and bring us into the deep, life, love, and intimacy of God himself. See, Jesus, the Son, was sent into the world to bring us into this dynamic life that exists in God. He wants to bring us into this dance. Jürgen Moltmann writes, the divine unity is not a closed unit, but a wide open, inviting, and integrating unity. I love that. Wide open, inviting, integrating. Come in, join the dance. The mutual love of the divine persons overflow so as to include creatures within it. Something that occurs when the Son of God takes human beings into his own intimate fellowship with his God and Father. You know, it's interesting, John, the apostle, it's interesting, in this gospel, he never talks about himself in, you know, the first person, direct kind of way, but theologians, scribes, readers of the Bible have believed for centuries that John writes himself into this gospel in this identity, the disciple whom Jesus loved. And I don't think John is talking about some exclusive type of relationship that he has. This isn't bragging rights, where he's like, hey, everybody, don't you wish what Jesus, you know, my best friend and I had? I think he writes as a witness. I think he writes this with personal invitation to each of us. And there's this beautiful scene at the end, towards the end of John, in the second book that John writes, the book of glory. And it's in the upper room when Jesus is talking about how he's going to be betrayed, and then he goes on to tell us about how the Holy Spirit is going to come from the Father, and you know, he talks all about you know, abiding in him and all these things. But before all that, when Jesus is talking about being betrayed, being handed over, 
says that Peter signals to this disciple whom Jesus loved to ask Jesus. And it says then that the disciple leans back on the chest of Jesus and he asks him, Lord, who is it? It's interesting, it's the same phrase that John uses in the beginning for the son being in the bosom of the father. So John writes to us about the one who lives in deep, intimate fellowship with the father, but John himself has experienced this deep, intimate fellowship through the son. As the father, excuse me, as the son has leaned upon the chest of the Father, so John has leaned upon the chest of the Son, and he himself has experienced the life, love, and goodness that can only be found in and through Jesus Christ. And John is at pain. He's like in turmoil, I believe, until we also experience this same love and life that is found in God. Do you remember how he begins his first epistle? Our joy isn't complete until God's love completes its circuit. Until God's love is birthed in you and you love like God, only then, he says, will our joy be complete. Can you hear the turmoil? Can you hear the anxiety? Oh, that Christ would be born in you. Oh, that the life and love of God would find its place in you. That is John's purpose. But John goes on to tell us something else. Starting in verse 10, John tells us that Christ, Jesus, the Son of God, the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. He came into the world, and the world responds to him. And it's not what we would expect after all that I've described about the life and love and goodness of God. It's tragic. Now, even though John or even the Bible itself doesn't use the theological term, the fall, this is undoubtedly what is being described here in humanity's distance, ignorance, lifelessness, and darkness apart from God. We experience all of these things because we are separated from God, who is the source of all life and goodness. And listen to the way that John describes it. What does he say? The light has come into the world, but the darkness didn't comprehend it. What is he saying? He's saying when life and love incarnate came among humanity, we didn't even recognize him. We're so twisted and turned in. We're in such darkness and blindness. We didn't even know life when it was staring us in the face. He goes on, he even went to his own people who he had revealed himself to, the people that he put his presence in the middle of their community, the people he blessed and protected, gave his wisdom and instruction to, but they didn't even recognize him. What John is showing us is the absolute ignorance, blindness, and darkness of humanity. That we don't even know or recognize 
where all light, goodness, and life comes from, as I said, even when it's staring us in the face. How dire the need of humanity. It reminds me of this thing I read by Fleming Rutledge over Christmas when she says that nothing can save us that is possible. The human race cannot expect to receive any lasting comfort from anything in the world. The comfort that we so desperately need must come from somewhere else in a burst of transcendent power breaking upon our ears from beyond our sphere altogether. That is the desperate need of humanity. But listen, the Word made flesh, Jesus, the Son of God, he isn't here for the judgment of humanity. History, the scriptures, especially the law and prophets, have already made our indictment abundantly clear. What John is telling us here is that the wisdom, life, light, and love of God has broken into the world in the person of Jesus Christ in order to rescue and redeem humanity, in order to bring us into the deep, intimate fellowship that God has always intended for humanity. That the word has come in order to remove the barriers of ignorance, blindness, sin, darkness, and finally, death. In order to bring us back into the fellowship with God, back into the dynamic love and life that is in God, this is a sheer act of God's goodness and grace. Can you see how all of this flows out of the life and love and goodness? that is in God himself. As I said a moment ago, we have all of these ideas, and I believe they're wrong ideas about God and about what he's after. And I think the reason John starts his gospel this way is to show us what God wants for us, what God intends for us. He wants to bring us into this glorious dance of joy and love that is found in him alone. You see, God did not create us, nor does God save us in order to get something from us. As if God needed us, needed our worship, as if God himself was needy. You know, the psalmists, the prophets talk about this. You, you think I need your cattle? You think I need your sacrifices? You think all, I need all these? No, the cattle on a thousand hills is mine. All the waters, all the hills, all of this belongs to me. I am, don't need anything. As the hymn says, thou art giving and forgiving, ever blessing, ever blessed. God does not need anything from us, no. The Son of God came into this world, lived and loved, served, proclaimed the kingdom of God, suffered, died, and was resurrected in order to bring us into the infinite joy of mutual love and glorification that is in God alone. The incarnation is God's message to the world. You are dearly loved and valued by God. He wants you to be part of his community. He wants life and all goodness 
for you. I mean, just think about what this book really entails. John's story is how the true bread came from heaven to give life to the world. It's a story of the giver of living water that if we drink, we'll never thirst again. It's the story of the light of the world through whom we see. We have a light that lights our way. It's the story of the door by whom we enter for true rest and safety. It's the story of the good shepherd who lays down his life to rescue his lost and abused sheep. It's the story of the resurrection and life whose very word will resurrect all who believe unto eternal life. It's the story of the way, the truth, and the life by whom we find true meaning and purpose of life that leads us home to the Father. And finally, it's the story of the true vine through whom we must abide. And if we do, we will bear much fruit. Do you wonder about God's intentions for you? Do you wonder what God is really like? Do you find yourself saying, oh yeah, there's God, but there's also fulfillment out there? You know, there's this incredible story in the Old Testament. It's this story that actually most people know, even if they're not Christian or have never read the Bible. And it's a story of the failure of David. And to kind of, you know, summarize the story, David takes a woman who is married to a friend of his. And uh, while his friend is away, he takes her and he sleeps with her. He impregnates her. And as the story goes on, in order to cover up, he brings his friend home and his friend won't, you know, kind of fit into David's cover-up plot. And so David has his friend killed. And David thinks the whole thing's okay, right? He's covered it up. He's safe. Nobody knows. Everything's all right. But... A little while later, the prophet Nathan comes to David and he tells him the story about this unrighteous thing that happened in you know, his kingdom where you know, this one man had all these sheep and this one man only had one sheep and the rich man had a party and so he went and took the one man's sheep and slaughtered it to feed his friend. And David's like, oh my gosh, I cannot believe that happened in my kingdom. That guy's gonna die. And Nathan says, David, this story's about you. This is what you did. And he says, God says this to you, David, I took you from the sheepfold. I gave you the kingdom of Saul. I gave you everything, and if this wasn't enough, I would have done much, much more. If this wasn't enough, I would have done much, much more. This story has affected my life in such a powerful way that it causes me to ask this question again and again and again, and that's this. What am I looking for, and where do I think I'm going to find it? So I want to ask you that question this morning. What are you looking for? And where do you think you're going to find it? Look, marriage, love, intimacy between other humans is a beautiful thing. Family is a wonderful thing. Success and career is a beautiful thing. It's a wonderful thing to accomplish something. But you were made for God. 
The human soul is too big for these things to, to you know, have this be the foundation, the source of your life. It cannot support you. It cannot save you or forgive you when you fail it. Augustine wisely once wrote, Lord, you have made us for yourself and our souls are restless until they rest in you. And I personally have found this to be the story of my life. Even as a follower of Jesus, to get distracted, to say, yeah, 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 I know it's, I know it's about Jesus, but about this shiny Beautiful thing that might fulfill and might just kind of, you know, take the edge off for a season or kind of give me a little bit of drive, you know, in this time of mediocrity or, you know, the mundane. What are you looking for? And where do you think you will find it? John wants to cut through all of that. And he's not here to say all of that, all of life is bad. And you should only love God. No. What he's trying to say is, unless God is the center and source, the, the one that you trust and believe in, you yourself will actually sabotage all the goodness that God wants to bring into your life. Because you will make it more than it is ever meant to be. You will drain it of all of the joy and life and goodness that it actually has for you because you will center your life on it when your life is meant for God. He is the source of all life, goodness, and love. And in fact, this gospel tells us that God wants to put that life, love, and goodness in us, and he wants it to flow from us that we might be sources of living water, of life and goodness in the world, that we might point away from ourselves as signs to life that can be found in and through the Son of God alone. That's what this book is about. And so, church, I just want to put forth this invitation to us, afresh and anew. And this morning, we have this incredible opportunity to take of the bread and the cup. And you know what Jesus says about the bread and the cup in John chapter 6? He says, if you eat my flesh and drink my blood, this is uh, symbolic of... Jesus' life given for us. If we feast on him, we will abide in him. We will make our home in him. We will center ourselves on him. And so we have this incredible invitation this morning to do a whole body kind of response to Jesus where we get up from our seats, where we walk down to these tables that have been set for us. And we take Jesus' invitation anew, and we do a physical act of eating. And as we do it, it's, it's mixed with faith. It's mixed with the pledge saying, yes, Lord, I want to find life in you. I want to take up your offer. I don't want to wander through life looking for wells of water to quench my thirst. I want to drink from this deep well. 
I want to find my life source in you. And so church, we have this opportunity this morning as the band comes out and just leads us in songs of praise and worship and adoration. We have this invitation from Jesus to come to take the bread and the cup and as an act of faith to re-center our lives on him, to abide in him and he in us. And so let's just invite the Lord just to search our hearts this morning, to draw out those deep, deep desires, and that we would put those on him and we would recenter our lives around him. Would you join me as we do that? So, Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have come into the world to rescue and to redeem us, to lead us back to life in you. And Lord, the greatest mistake that we could make as the people of God, the people who are near to your word and familiar with your spirit, is to think that, yes, it's Jesus and there's something out there. Lord, would we hear afresh this invitation from your word that we might have life in your name. Lord, that whatever we're hungering and thirsting for, we will not find that apart from you or by going around you or by adding on to you, but we will only find it in and through you. Lord, I pray for those who maybe have plateaued, that their life in you has become mundane, it has become morose, boring, lifeless. And we pray, Lord, as the prophets prayed this morning, Lord, that you would break up the hardened ground of our hearts, that you would give us a hunger and a deep thirst for life. Lord, light a fire in our hearts that can only be from you that can only find its consistency, its endurance in you. And so, Lord, we come this morning. We come, Lord, with heavy hearts. We come with our sin and brokenness. We come with a hunger and a thirst. And, Lord, we want to feast on you. So, Lord, meet us here at your table. Fill us. Refresh us, forgive us, overflow us with your life, your love, and your goodness. Amen.